Risa presents the Real Talks Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Risa's Real Talk Podcast. It's Kirin Halak, your host for today, stepping in for our director of podcast, Lee Fiala. I'm here today with co-host Joey Stenslin. Thank you for joining us today. It is great to be here. On today's episode, we are joined by a very special guest, Anthony Jufri, entrepreneur and CEO of Avenue Living. Thank you for taking the time to be here today, Anthony. Thanks, you guys, for having me. I'm looking forward to this this afternoon. Before we get started on questions, how about you take the spotlight, Anthony, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, I am actively acting as the CEO of Avenue Living group of companies, in particular at Avenue Living Asset Management and Avenue Living Communities. We're a real estate consolidator, particularly in the workforce housing space in Canada, in the United States. Uh, we hold and own approximately 13,000 apartments um, in approximately just under 30 jurisdictions, predominantly Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and now in the United States, um, in, in I believe four jurisdictions, soon to be five, in Colorado, uh, in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in Kansas, and soon to be in Tennessee. Um, outside of that, we also operate uh, four other real estate platforms, Avenue Living Agricultural Land Trust, where we aggregate farmland in Saskatchewan. We hold about 48,000 acres of farmland. We don't operate, but we, we uh we lease two operators and uh, it's our essentially what it allows us to do is really to get agricultural land exposure, but without, without per se operating a farm, we leave, leave that to the experts. And certainly what we do is we, it's just what we deem this as, is as a great extension and a variation on commercial real estate leasing. Outside of that, we also have uh, two other real estate mandates. Uh, one being Avenue Living Opportunity Trust. And Opportunity Trust buys um, in, in many sectors of real estate, predominantly multifamily, but also does industrial acquisitions. It also does uh, commercial real estate acquisitions as well. And typically what it does do is it buys impaired real estate assets where either we repurpose, we kind of remedy, let's say management or capital impairments, and then either we keep it for a long-term cash flow producing asset and or we then turn around and we'll sell it into a market. The last real estate platform or fund that we operate is mini mall storage properties. So that one's near and dear to my heart. Um, that one was the family business that started about 40 years ago. Um, my very first job kind of worked with my dad for years uh, through kind of junior high and high school. I uh, went on to my own ventures at the age of 18. Um, I've been in business now from, with, for 30 years, so you guys can do the math of how old I am. Um, and what we did is we bought our, my dad's last remaining asset 18 months, actually, I'll call it two years ago, um, from him. And we, we elected to kind of build, again, another, another fund or real estate platform around that. And what we've done is we've rolled up B and C class storage assets um, across Canada. And now heading into the United States, we're just acquiring this quarter in the United States. But we went from that one storage asset to now over 50 locations across Canada. 
So, so literally a standing start at 50,000 feet to now over 2 million feet. So interesting fund, the aggregate of the real estate assets are about 3 billion in AUM, over 200 million in annual reoccurring revenue. And on the other side of kind of my world, we also have a private equity business. So private equity business um, levers off of the Avenue Living platform. And what it does do is it finds everyday businesses. Because when we think of workforce housing and we think of the storage business, those are really everyday businesses. Incredible customers, resilient residents through the pandemic that we've seen. And what we've done is that's become our recipe for success. So what typically is, is the cornerstone of the private equity platform, it again is those everyday businesses. So Noto Gelato, you'll see in Calgary, you'll also see Alberta Boot, there's another one. We're also in the fiber optic business, so Velo Networks. So we construct and we light up net networks right across uh, the prairies. Right now we're doing Red Deer County, um, as well as a number of other tech, tech opportunities, typically speaking, Entrepreneurs will come to us and say, hey, I've got an idea. We'd like to set up, we have a startup. We'll provide capital advisory services and typically a platform to really build, to build out what their entrepreneurial dream. <clears throat> so it, it keeps me pretty busy. On top of that, I serve on four different boards, actually five different boards. I serve on UNICEF Canada. I serve on UNICEF Patrons Council out of Calgary. Also, I do uh, the Canadian Olympic Foundation, Calgary Public Library Foundation, and the Canadian Olympic Foundation. So pretty busy person, have, have a big family as well. Got four kids, one on the way. So keeps me really occupied, really busy. And, uh, you know, I'm also an avid athlete. So I've done Ironman triathlon 16 times, countless marathons, and uh, love kind of CrossFit and any type of fitness challenge that I can find. Anthony, to start from more of the beginning, uh, we know you're born and raised in Calgary. You attended the University of Calgary. Uh, would you be able to share your entrepreneurial journey before Avenue? And have you ever worked for somebody else in, in a corporate job before? Uh, I have, sure. So I'll start off. I'll, I'll try and thread the questions in. As, as alluded to, obviously, my first job was working for the family business, which was mini mall self-storage back then, not mini mall storage properties. And it was, um, it was literally kind of doing whatever it took, whatever obviously my dad had in mind for me during those Saturdays, weekends, summers, those were, that was my first job. So wouldn't necessarily call it a corporate job. Um, I don't know what you would, what you would in turn call family businesses. Um, it's a lot less than corporate. And, uh, you're probably going to have to work the hardest because obviously you're representing you're representing the family, and that certainly was kind of the core values that I was I grew up with. Uh, through U of C, while going to U of C, I I lived in the entrepreneurial world um, way back when I was a president of something called the Golden Red Club at the university, which really was kind of the um, I guess it was a club to try and bring people to U of C events and. Um, really promote, you know, obviously student participation at the university that goes back many years. Not sure if that club is still around, but um, what, I, what I was doing also in parallel to that synergistically just so happened is I was involved in the restaurant and nightclub industry. Back then there was a place along 11th Avenue called Electric Avenue. And <clears throat> excuse me for that. I, I worked for a lot of those different establishments kind of again in a promotion and marketing capacity. 
I was pretty good at it. And kind of my first entrepreneurial venture was actually sitting at my own nightclub um, off of 11th Avenue. And in parallel to that, you know, to talk about a juxtaposed business, also setting up and building a, out a used appliance company in Bowness in Calgary. Um, I ended up selling the, the nightclub to, to our, our manager, general manager. And, but I then went on to building out the appliance business. And the appliance business, basically from the age of, call it 18 to 25, was kind of my mainstay uh, while going to school. And really what I did there was took one little store in Bowness to, and it was basically a shop slash retail outlet to, I think we had 11 retail stores by the time we ended up winding up the business and I think a 40,000 square foot remanufacturing facility in Edmonton. That was kind of my first big venture, but it was also my first big failure. So it worked out really well. I, you know, I funded the business off of cash flow, relatively little to no investor equity. Um, the struggle was, is that the, the success of the business was also its failure, which was basically buying kind of a used appliance husks or machines, refitting them and then indexing them or pricing them against the price of the MSRP of a new one. That made a lot of sense and obviously great cash flow, low cost of goods sold, basically input costs coming from skilled labor being appliance taken to the technicians. But inevitably what ended up happening is the cost of parts and the cost of the new appliance being the new appliance market inevitably did us in. So what do I mean? Are these, are these kitchen appliances like those is the end like, user? Like, yeah, like white goods, fridges, stoves, washer dryers, etc. And <clears throat> what ended up happening is the, the the success of the business was we indexed off of MSRP. And we were about 50% off of MSRP. And what ended up happening was there was a consolidation in the white goods industry. So all of the big guys bought all the other smaller guys and some of them merged together. And then there was a price war on those that were remaining. And so if my, my price was based on the MSRP price and that MSRP price dropped by 30% based on a price war, I was done. And so- Just for our listeners, what does that stand for, MSRP? So essentially that's the market price. That's the suggested retail price of a white good. And so let's say if it was $500, but then there was a price war, they kind of battle, you know, like any price war, you battle yourself usually lower and lower to try and achieve customer share. And so long story short, margins were eroded. And that was my first entrepreneurial experience where I had to basically shut the doors. So great lessons along the way. You know, everyone says, okay, you haven't been a true entrepreneur until you've had a failure. Well, my first one was a big failure and actually watching um, the receiver come in and basically asking me to leave so that way they could essentially liquidate the business. Those were all things that I remember and um, really kind of, you know, ring true in terms of reminding myself of some of the the key tenets of business, of what to do, what not to do, even obviously 20 plus years later when we're running Avenue Living in some of the private equity deals as mentioned. That is amazing insight. Anthony, I do have some follow-up questions based on that story. Um, how did that opportunity come about as you were, I don't know if this was when you were in university or after that, and also what exactly are the lessons that you learned 
from that failure? Sure. So yes, it was while going to UFC. It was a friend of mine's dad or stepdad that was in, he was in, he was an engineering student and he just said, Hey, you know, do you want to come kind of meet with my stepdad? He said, he's got the small little business in Boness and uh, maybe you and I can help him out. He seems to be struggling. That's where it came from. So it wasn't anything, you know, special. It was really unsolicited. It started more as a favor and built itself into something totally different than that. Um, when, it, when it comes, you know, when, I think when it comes to lessons learned, <laughs> when you fail at something, there's, there are way more lessons learned than there are when you succeed at something. Um, and that really is mining your cash, you know, in, in business. I mean, a CEO, I tell this to, to my CEOs, obviously, that help run the real estate funds. You know, your eye needs to be on the prize, on the strategy, on the cash, on the expenses of your business, and essentially the trajectory of your business. All of those are paramount to success because it's not what you see in front of you. Typically, it's no different than as explained in that particular story, talking about the white goods. It's what gets you from the sides that usually takes you out. And not understanding that there would be a price war really has nothing to do with my business or back then. But clearly it was enough to, <clears throat> excuse me, to really have a negative effect and inevitably see the undoing of the business or the unwinding of the business. Now, have you worked for anybody else, especially in an office job, corporate job, or has life, taking on life on your own been your best teacher? So I, I guess I could say my early, my early trappings of real estate would be working with someone. And that would have been one of my siblings. Um, I come from a big family. So there's, there's seven of us. I'm the youngest. So the next in line was in real estate. And really that's how I got my beginnings in real estate was I was doing some, some management consulting um, after the appliance business. And he had come to me cause he was a, he was a realtor and he did, he did micro investing. So what do I mean by that? More of those second house, third house, you know, the quads, the fourplexes, et cetera. And he said, Anthony, I need a favor. You know, and I was still trying to find my way because I was recovering financially from, from the, the, down, the downfall of the other business. And I said, what can I do? And he said, well, I want to go away with my family for three weeks. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to take, take your real estate license and, you know, help, help, help me out really and cover my clients while I'm gone. And I didn't know the first thing about real estate. So I always like to say, you know, my early beginnings in real estate, you know, around 20 years ago, really, I was an accidental tourist. I ended up in there, I took the course and then working with him for about a year, year and change really decided I liked it. And from there decided that I needed to kind of chart my own path, which I did with one of his clients that I met along the way became my client, which was Carl Diodati who is a co-founder of Avenue Living. My, my next question can be, especially for our peers, uh, peers in, in university, what kind of businesses can we start while university that would be, that would be uh, viable, um, especially, with the, uh, especially with the advent of the internet in play? It's really interesting and could bring even more opportunity for us utilizing the web. So I'm gonna steer you away from that for a second. Um, sure. So, and the reason is, is obviously I am pitched probably on the private equity side, prop tech, fintech, 
and just general tech deals, I am probably pitched four times a day. The struggle with most, you know, businesses that are tech forward or someone has an idea. And again, this is a personal slant, personal opinion. So I'll qualify that as I would with any forward looking statement on, on a release. But what it comes down to is the tech, there's a lot of competition out there for tech businesses. So depending on what it is, the niche that it kind of surrounds itself around, um, it's pretty difficult for your average student to compete. I mean, if it's an incredibly unique idea with it, with a, with a market or an addressable market that has untapped, absolutely, there's an opportunity there. But what I would say, conversely, where nobody is looking and it's hiding in plain sight is exactly what I'm out there doing. I'm finding everyday businesses that are traditional businesses. As everybody goes one way, I like to try and go the other. And I would say, because there's so much tilt on tech forward businesses on hitting that unicorn, finding the unicorn, taming the unicorn, all of those wonderful things. Sometimes the, the best businesses are the simplest businesses that our parents did, our grandparents did, et cetera, that really aren't, and I use the term carefully, sexy, uh, because it's, it takes a lot of hard work. It's a lot of grind. It's one foot in front of the other, but What's interesting about a lot of those businesses is they're real businesses with real cash flow, real cost of goods sold against decent margins. So things that you can quantify, things that you can work and build. So for me, that would be my tilt, albeit I'm involved in many tech businesses as a founder, as an advisor, as a board member, I would still say all day long, I would rather play the I would rather play the game going up the field three yards at a time, than I would trying to you know hit somebody on the numbers in the end zone, as some of these tech some of these tech businesses are kind of shooting for. So that's just a personal that's a personal take on it, and everybody of course is going to be different. And you have a very valuable perspective too if you're if you're being pitched four times a day uh, and what you're saying is you don't have to reinvent the wheel no sometimes if, if we only paid attention to what's in front of us most wheels are wheels and they're round and they roll nicely it just takes a whole lot of effort to do it so i think you know st the students out there listening to this i would say that the simplest businesses that you can identify a market an addressable market that have real that have real margins to them are wonderful because you can grow, as long as you're willing to grind it out, you can grow those businesses to something real and a definable, repeatable cash flow or revenue stream. And to and to make it even to make it even better with some tech technological aspect to it. Um, of course. In our technological age, yes. Of course. I mean, you take the simplest business, right? Um, I'll give you one. Like, it sounds silly, but the landscaping business. I know lots of people that only work six months of the year in Calgary running a landscape business because they make so much money in that six months that they go travel the winter. 
And those that are particularly successful have used technology to understand their customer base, to attract a new customer base, to achieve, you know, access to an addressable market faster than their peer group who's, you know, they might do the same thing, go knock on doors, but at the end of the day, they're using technology, scheduling, whatever that so happens to be. And again, using something very simple, there's an ability to make a lot of money. And that's truly an everyday business. That's about as simple as you get. You had a great interview on YouTube with Calgary Canada's podcast, if you remember that one. I do, yes. A lot of good insights. You did mention in, in, in that interview that it's usually easier to scale um, a bigger business than continue to run a smaller business. What, why is that? Um, <clears throat> a couple of different things. Um, when we think of, when we think of the smaller businesses, typically, obviously first, I mean, our, our most scarce resource outside of time is probably labor. Right. And so when you're setting up a small business and, and labor relative to, relative to capital or relative to budget or to spend. So when you think of that small business that someone is creating um, and they're trying to build it, it's sometimes very, very difficult, right? Because you see that with entrepreneur, it's an entrepreneurial trap. And a lot of cases is that the person, in fact, I had this conversation literally today with one of our entrepreneurs, that person that says, oh, I can do this and I can do that and I can, I can do it all. The struggle is, is their time is pulled in a whole bunch of different directions and they're managing all of the details. When you're managing all the details, what ends up happening is sometimes you take your eyes off the horizon or the prize because you're so focused on doing all of the little things that you miss all the big things. And then what ends up happening is you, you start to bend down and pick up the pennies, but you trip over all the dollars. So what I like to try and do is say, you know, making sure that You've got a business that has a base and when it has a base and you have an understanding that you can scale it, in a lot of cases, it's easy because if it, again, it's a function of having an addressable market, having margins, having a revenue stream that you can grow. But if it's there, it's easier if you can find the capital to grow that than to try and do it very slowly because typically the weakest link is the individual running the business because they cannot be an expert at all things. That is great. Anthony, um, I have a question about your entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial route with um, Avenue Living in specific. I kind of want to bring it back to real estate because um, that's my like field of interest. Um, sure. So <laughs> yeah, so just talk to me about more of how you started Avenue Living. You said you had a co-founder as well. Um, how did that work out? And then also the start of the um, partnership with Jason, who we just had a podcast with as well. Um, kind of want to know a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so as mentioned, um, I, I started, I was working in real estate in, um, gosh, this goes back to the early 2000s and chanced upon a client who was an engineer, um, very smart guy, I really liked him. <clears throat> we got along really well and he had a real appetite for real estate as did I and a fascination with it. And, you know, we, we had coffee, we chatted and really we said, you know what, what would be the best thing to, how would we get into real estate outside of being in, in a 
in an agency capacity. So what do I mean by an agency capacity being a broker seller or a realtor seller relationship, a transactional relationship. And what we determined was that we might want to look outside of kind of the normal, <clears throat> the normal road. And so what we did is we kind of said, okay, well, how do we, how do we get involved with real estate differently than, you know, with all of these clients that want to invest or people that want to buy real estate, what's the best thing to do without just selling them a house or selling them a condo. So what we came up with was condo conversions. So that's what we did. So we went, you know, and obviously we, we only had the money that was available to us. So we started very small with two and three story walk-ups in the Beltline in Calgary, usually anywhere between 12 and kind of 18 sweeters. And what we did is basically we did the stratification of these titles we did the exterior of the building. We did the interiors being the common areas and the mechanical. And we did, we stopped at the door. We didn't do the suites inside of these. And what we, what we were able to do is we were able to reposition these buildings as condos and to be sell, able to sell them because we didn't do the furniture, redo the furnishings inside or the finishings inside. We we're able to sell them at a wholesale price. So what ended up happening is we were able to sell a lot of these condos or basically repurposed apartments at a significant delta to what a newly renovated repurposed apartment being under the label of a condo were selling for in the market. And so our value at our value proposition was going to the real estate investors and saying, look, we can sell this to you at 50, 60, 70,000 under market you figure out what renovations you want to do we're stopping at the door and you essentially can make whatever margin that you want because you are now the business owner you are now the real estate investor and so what it allowed us to do was with not having to deal with the suites and the fine finishings uh, or the, the finite details associated with the finishings what we were able to do is really gain kind of the gain the success on the time value of money equation and it worked really well for us. And so that's essentially what we did. And we did about 70 of those uh, condo conversions and then recognized that we were, it was an arbitrage clearly. So the market was rising. We were selling into a hot market. So it made some sense, but we recognized the longer we stayed in it and within it, we were running the risk of essentially overpaying or of the market really kind of disappearing under our feet. So we took our capital that we had made and then we looked for reoccurring revenue. And when we look at Calgary, Calgary's got some incredible real estate entrepreneurs. We think of Sam Coleus, we think of the folks behind um, Northview, we think of Main Street Equities. There's a number of incredible entrepreneurs out there, what I would call my peer group. They've been at it way longer than I have and they're very successful. And so watching them, realizing that they had a successful business plan, most of them would be public. So, you know, we read every one of their MD&As, every one of their annual reports, and really took our real estate knowledge and said, okay, let's buy multifamily and let's try and buy in the Calgary metro area. Well, very quickly, we found out we didn't have enough capital. We didn't have enough reputation. Uh, we didn't have the borrowing power to be able to do that. So we reached out, you know, between Calgary and Edmonton, same thing, kind of that oil corridor back then, what we'll call the Alberta Advantage. Um, we just 
Obviously the deal flow didn't come our way, even if we had a little bit of capital, we extended all the way to Fort McMurray into Northern Alberta, again, same thing. So what we recognize is that we had to go outside of Calgary, um, maybe not in the direction of strength being oil and gas and really focused on other industries. We chanced upon Brooks and quickly recognized that there was an opportunity in that tertiary markets because it was typically not a valued market for the, uh, for the chartered banks to lend for multifamily. Um, it was considered a secondary market, so it was usually had a cap rate impairment. And then on top of that, what we also saw was something that really did appeal to us, which was, you know, the product kind of looked the same as it did in Calgary. You know, it was just some circa 1970s, 1980s. But and when we looked at the tenant profile, it basically had the same tenant profile as Calgary. Folks that were kind of making kind of between 15 and $50 an hour which we've now termed as workforce housing. And so in looking at that, we quickly recognized that there was an opportunity. It had a bigger cap rate, obviously, and you know, a decompressed cap rate. So which means that, you know, essentially you could get a greater return on your dollars invested. It had a resident base that made the right amount of income, in fact, proportionally higher income than those than those in Calgary, in particular in Brooks, because there was a big meatpacking plant there. And those folks made lots of dough compared to the rents. And so we also looked then at what the rents were. And we recognized that because they went, we were in a tertiary markets for that same product with a higher, with a higher resident profile and income basis, that everything was kind of misaligned. So that's where we saw the opportunity and said, if it happens in Brooks, what other secondary tertiary markets in Alberta, Saskatchewan would, be this, would this be the same in? And that's where we built the first probably six or seven years of our business, focusing in those secondary tertiary markets. That first purchase in Brooks was 24 units. And as mentioned in the early part of our discussion today, we're now at 3 billion and 13,000 units. And when we count storage units, we have just shy of 18,000 units. So, I mean, you can really see, you know, looking maybe outside of the normal lens that one would look at, you know, maybe having to drive every third day or every second day for that first year, year and a half to Brooks on the highway to collect rents or to manage the properties, it's probably worth it because we created a niche, we identified the niche, we built it out, and then we built a platform to support it. Yeah, it's crazy to think that when I started, uh, when I got, when I was interviewing for my position at Avenue, I remember doing my research and seeing that there was, I think, 1.6 billion assets under management. And then now, just like two weeks ago, I heard that there was 3 billion AUM. So I was like, that's, that's crazy growth. And I was just follow up question to that since that came up. Um, how is that growth? Um, how is Avenue Living achieving that growth? And do you think that that's something that's going to expand into more like class A um, real estate or more towards like, I guess, um, the business model of companies like Boardwalk or Main Street, or would you continue to um, target that workforce demographic? Sure, I have an old adage, you know, if something's, if something's working, you wanna stick with it. So, or would you always also hear in business, stick to your knitting. Um, well, one thing that I can tell you is really, as we've identified 
the customer base and what's the success of Avenue Living? It's the breadth and depth of the platform. It's the number of hours, that 10,000 hour rule that not only myself and senior management have put in, but it's really in you know, taking buildings, understanding obviously the resident and customer experience, fixing impaired buildings, bringing them to a new market standard, you know, really never getting the benefit of an upward or a bull market, really always arguably, like if we think of Avenue Living and you think of it starting in 2006 or 2021, um, the bear market in Alberta probably hit late 2014. So we've been in a bear now for the better part of six and a half years, coupled before that, obviously, with the financial crisis and the recovery out of the financial crisis prior to that. So we've actually been in an impaired economy, um, basically 50% of the time that the business has been operating. So why do I bring that up? I bring that up predominantly because um, we've had to become an operator. The success of the growth was, became, it was because we actually stuck to our knitting. We became very good at what we did. We focused on a product type that we understood. We focused on a very resilient customer and we learned how to manage our business and operate our business. And when you start to operate your business through unforeseen circumstances, through pandemics, through financial crisis, through an oil crisis, regionalized oil crisis, all that other stuff, um, people start to pay attention. And people start to pay attention being the capital markets. So typically capital flows to good deals. We think we have very good deals because essentially they're resilient deals. They're, they're not gonna go from one to a hundred but they're very steady, they produce, and it's a very predictable cash flow. So when we index an acquisition against the cost of new, typically speaking, we're a lot cheaper um, than building new. Therefore, kind of our, our, our product type is there to stay and our resident is also there to stay. We think if there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons, obviously it's cheaper in a lot of cases to rent, especially in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, than it is to buy. Um, have some of the obviously the, the, the lowest posted rents against income in the country. And so when we look at that, we'll probably do just more of the same, continue to grow, to continue to find maybe larger assets, continue to grow south of the border, because the workforce housing market in the US is significant and large. Um, and we'll continue, we'll continue to build out our platform and to really continue to focus on the customer experience. By doing that, we think we will have a very much an enduring long-term platform. And where do we know how big will it get? That I can't tell you. It's gonna be a function of many different variables. But what I can tell you is we're gonna to continue to put our best foot forward and to grow our business the best way that we possibly can. We just had a PRI designation. So ESG policies were very important to us. And again, really focusing on being forward leading through technology, but also through just best practices. And that's our goal is to be best in class over time. Predominantly, I would, I would, I would say best in class and you know, best policies, whether it would be ESG, whether it would be obviously the customer experience now to all of the senior management is far more important than growth. I think with that in mind, I do think if we focus on that, we will see growth naturally as a result. That's, a, that's another great step forward. Congratulations on the signing of the PRI. 
My next question is, what, what was the most challenging aspect um, since starting out in Brooks of growing your portfolio? Is it is it finding the alpha in acquisitions or is it is it is it raising money? What, what's going to differentiate one asset manager from growing its portfolio over another asset manager that, that that's stuck? Well, it's not finding finding alpha. I mean, people find that that is, I mean, it's very cliche. People love that because they think that that's really what it's the art of the deal. I, I will say, I mean, the how well you buy is definitely, it always has to be a focus in real estate because once it's purchased, it's purchased. That's that's your entry book level on your balance sheet. However, the what our alpha, finding alpha for us is operating and operating well. And it's probably the most difficult thing is understanding that if you look at what our platform is, it's a gigantic M&A operation. So we buy, you know, think of a building, each one of those buildings has a tax return. So it's like a little company all onto itself. And obviously when you think of different shapes and sizes, tenant base, um, income of residents, along with, you know, different geographies within the portfolio, um, streamlining them and, and truly operating them under one set of core values, one operating SOP, one standard operating procedure, you know, really trying to harmonize the customer base and the building base, that was the hardest thing. And I guess what? That happens every single day and has happened every single day for 15 or 16 years. Anthony, how do you, how do you get so much done on a daily basis every week? Well, the multitasking is extraordinary. Yeah. Well, my, my day starts typically speaking just after five. In my first meeting, um, usually it's 5.45 or 6. I've been working from home for the better part of, of through the pandemic, the better part of 18 months. I sit, I, you know, I sit at my desk and I take one call after another call. I work out in between my calls. So I did 100,000 push-ups in a year my first year of the pandemic just to see if I could do it just for fun. I've got a mat right beside my desk. Um, and I work out all day while I'm doing that. So that keeps me motivated. And then what I do, which is really special, is I take usually an hour and a half to two hours off at lunchtime every single day. And I go for a walk with my wife. And so I decompress and I don't go for a business lunch. I have a standing date with my wife and we go for a big walk, usually 10K, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But it's every single day and I come back, I'm recharged, ready to go. And I finish, you know, I go call after call after call. I probably read 500 emails a day. I'm on the phone probably north of, north of nine hours, legitimate nine hours. And, you know, I don't meet with anybody person to person. I think that for me right now, it takes up too much time for what we're trying to do. And I've taken a management style, a leadership style of servitude management, really where I'm there to help. I'm not there to, you know, be the big ego in the room. I usually stand down. Uh, I ask a ton of questions and I really act as, as the greater coach of anything else to try and help the very skilled people that have come and that are also very passionate that work with Avenue Living kind of help them kind of achieve their goals, which are our goals, which are my goals. So it kind of works very well. So this, this is why you work from home. 
You yep. have your exercise right at your disposal. That's right. That way nobody thinks it's weird. Yes, I, I, I worked an internship all from home, from my bedroom. And it was, it was a difference maker for me um, to go for that workout at lunchtime. Um, just, just to be revitalized for the rest of the afternoon. It was, it was, it was very uh, profound. The, my energy levels and the difference rather than it. eating a big lunch. Well, that's right. Everybody's different, right? So it's kind of one of those things that works really well for me. It might not work well for others. Yeah. So my question is, when do you eat then if you work out in between your calls and you take a long walk during lunch? I kind of eat on the go. There's no okay. lack of, you know, I still, it's not that I, <laughs> I just eat at my desk and just kind of keep going. I remember I, I do more listening than I do talking. So okay. I try and be a very much an active listener. And so the nice part is, is that as an active listener, a lot of the time you're just sitting there. So if I'm hungry, I know I just put myself on mute and uh, have a snack, I guess. Yeah, nope, fair enough. But on a more serious note though, um, how do you manage like any stress levels or when you're having a particularly challenging day, I know as, on, as an entrepreneur, that could be the case at times. And I was just wondering how, um, how since you have a busy schedule, how you prioritize and manage the, that stress? Well, <clears throat> I guess I manage it two different ways. One is talking about the fitness regime. I really like that. That's kind of an offset. But the other one that I've also given you guys is the fact that I, I get to spend time with someone that I obviously my life partner that I love and care dearly about. And as a result, it's I, I'm able to decompress because I, it allows me to remember what's the most important thing. It's not the business and the next deal or whatever so happens to be. It's obviously it's of a greater purpose. Right. So I use those two mechanisms that really center me and also recognizing after years of ex business experience that when this problem goes, another one's going to prop up or crop up. So at the end of the day, you have to learn how to deal with stress just by saying, you know, not that it will pass, but that if you bite it once, one little bite at a time, I guess that's how you're supposed to eat an elephant. And in business, every one of them, regardless of the type of business, they're all elephants. Um, you just do it very systematically, very carefully. And typically speaking, it works. Are there any international trips that, uh, that you took in your life that uh, made a big impact on you, especially, especially being, uh, be cre being creative and thoughtful for avenues business? Yeah, I've, I've done lots of international travel. Uh, one in particular, I was, uh, my wife and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. That was uh, very neat, very cool. We also did uh, kind of Asia, Asia with two backpacks um, and 40 days and 40 nights, I think in five different countries in, in Asia. And we had a way into most countries and a way out in a different city. And we had to find our way through and a version of planes, trains and automobiles. And uh, I think those experiences definitely kind of opened our eyes to international travel and to there's not one way that everybody lives, whether it would be our, our um, Western advantage or disadvantage, uh, but everybody across the world lives differently. And there's lots of different ways to, to live a, a meaningful life. And for that matter, run a business. And you really see entrepreneurship at its best in some of the, you know, 
the less developed countries because entrepreneurship is everywhere and it thrives. Any, any examples on that? Any like snapshots in your brain of uh, of an entrepreneurial endeavor that just that just kind of shook you? Just just a side of it. Well, if you, I mean, certainly this, this goes back a few years, but you know, when we were in Vietnam, you name it, if there was a consumer good that you wanted to have, you could buy it at the street level. And it was a fraction of the cost. And it was very interesting to see the levels of entrepreneurship and the levels of logistics and distribution on in, in a country that was that was growing and that was recreating itself. It was fascinating to watch. That's amazing. I personally love traveling. I am from Dubai and I moved here. I'm also Lebanese Russian, so I've been almost all over. Um, the only place I really haven't been is probably the States and like Latin America. So this side of the hemisphere, but um, I definitely think traveling does shape your, does shape your character a lot and gives you um, an insight to many different perspectives and cultures. So I think it's really important. Um, I do have a question though. Um, I saw that you've taken on a couple of mentorship roles. Do you want to touch a little bit on that? Sure. Um, mentorship roles, typically speaking, um, are just more self-interest in terms of me seeing some, someone or an individual group of individuals with um, I would, let's say a concept and idea and usually, you know, a lot of horsepower without necessarily a lot of refinement. So those mentorship roles in a lot of cases are me, you know, ask, being an active listener and asking the appropriate questions to be able to say, if it was me, you might want to look over here or have you looked over there and really more coaching than anything else. I mean, mentorship, depending on how one looks at it and what one needs from it is active coaching. And it's really not necessarily doing it for someone. And in some cases, you know, am I involved or is Jason and I or our team involved financially in some of these mentorship relationships for sure. But it's more so because we want to see because entrepreneurship, entrepreneurialism is very, very challenging, very difficult. And, you know, there's so many different off ramps might lead you totally the wrong way. So for me, just kind of a notion of goodwill, in some cases, empathy, because I've, I've been through it. I know how hard it is. I've experienced failure. And uh, it's exciting some in some cases just to watch people ideate and innovate and come up with something that they never thought that they could by somebody kind of helping steer them a little bit. And is that how you got into the private equity branch of things yes okay awesome i find that really interesting too because maybe a lot of our peers at, at the university are, are focused on uh, finding a job with this big employer with this big company um, but forget also there's the option to try to figure something out on their own um, on an entrepreneurial mindset uh, do, do you have any advice to students on on boosting their the way they think, think, think about things, starting a business, um, entrepreneurially, how, how can we be more entre entrepreneurially uh, minded? Well, free advice is always the most dangerous. So I won't bestow any free advice. What I'll do is I'll give you a position and an opinion. How's that? Love it. Let's hear it. All right. 
So I think that there are many different types of people in the world. Some that are entrepreneur that have an entrepreneurial mindset and those that clearly don't. Um, it's one of the, one of those things that there are, will always be oppor entrepreneurial opportunities out there and clearly the best ones lie in plain sight. The challenge is, is time and the grind. If someone had told me this years and years ago, I might not have understood it, but I understand it, obviously, as I said, 30 years later today um, for my first entrepreneurial venture. And if someone has desire, if someone has patience and someone's willing to put in the time and effort for incremental small gains, they will be a very successful entrepreneur. However, they have to have the stomach for it because every day looks a lot like the previous day and it's, they're all hard. People have this thought that they're going to, you know, have early days and maybe go golfing in the summer and go to live the cabin life, whatever so happens to be. I would say those are the far exception rather than the rule. And if you talk to most entrepreneurs, they, the successful ones, their overnight success. I used to think it was 10 years. Then now I've realized maybe it's 15, but true entrepreneurial success is probably north of 20 in a given business. So some might say that's a prison sentence. I don't know, but that's what it's gonna take to truly be successful because to achieve mastery of anything takes one thing, well, maybe two. Will, desire as one, in time yeah that's insightful well i am cognizant of time so i don't want to keep you for too long anthony thank you so much for being a part of our podcast and joining us today i loved hearing your story from start to finish and how your entrepreneurial journey started from all the way from high school all the way to the way it is today and to all our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it on your social media if you did. And we hope to continue providing awesome content for you. Thank you, guys. Pleasure chatting with both of you today. I wish you both the very best and all your listeners as well. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Reese's Real Talks podcast. Until next time, keep it real.